Welcome to Overtime with the Sports Docs. On each of these mini episodes, Catherine and I chat about a new topic or surgical technique in the field of sports medicine. We'll give you our quick take on the indications or various surgical approaches and an overview of the clinical outcomes and recent literature. Today, we're talking about psychological readiness to return to sport following ACL surgery. Psychological readiness has emerged as an important factor associated with outcomes following surgery. We are highlighting a study published this month in AJSM by Lynn Snyder-Mackler. She's a physical therapist and scientist at the University of Delaware. The authors set out to determine whether athletes with a positive psychological response after participation in a neuromuscular training and second injury prevention program had better self-reported function and activity outcomes compared with athletes who did not have a meaningful change. The authors hypothesized that psychological factors may be modifiable during the course of ACL rehab and that improving them may lead to better clinical outcomes. So let's discuss the study in a bit more detail, starting with the methods. This was a level three cohort study that evaluated 66 athletes after completion of a formal ACL rehab program. The athletes completed multiple patient-reported outcome measures, including one, the ACL return to sport after injury scale, or the ACL RSI, two, the IKDC subjective knee form, and three, the five subscales of the COOS evaluation. The measures recorded at this time were considered their pre-training scores. Of note, these 66 athletes were considered level one and level two athletes, which means those who are participating in cutting, pivoting, and jumping sports for at least 50 hours per year. The athletes then underwent 10 sessions of agility, plyometric, and progressive strength training. Proper form was encouraged throughout the sessions during the plyometric and agility exercises. Proper form meaning that greater knee flexion and avoidance of knee valgus were encouraged. Plyometric and agility exercises were gradually progressed in quantity and complexity over the course of the 10 sessions. For example, single leg plyometric exercises were initially performed over flat ground during the first three sessions. Then sessions 4 through 10 incorporated a hurdle that increased in height over the sessions. For agility, linear movements were introduced first and then progressed to multi-directional movements with the athletes completing movements related specifically to their individual sport and utilizing a ball and or equipment specific to that sport. The aforementioned measures were repeated after the 10 sessions and at both one and two years following their ACL surgery. All right, so how do the authors define a positive psychological response? Meaning, of these athletes, which ones were considered responders to the training program and which ones were considered non-responders? So the participants who displayed an increase in the ACL-RSI score from pre-training to post-training that exceeded the minimally clinically important difference, which was greater than or equal to 10 points, were defined as having a positive psychological response. So they were the responders to training, and those who did not were defined as non-responders. The authors used a mixed model analysis of variance to determine if group differences in IKDC and CUS scores existed over the four time points, pre-training, post-training, and the one and two year follow-ups. So let me tell you about the results. There were 39 athletes, or 59%, who demonstrated a clinically important increase in the ACL-RSI score of greater than 10 points and formed the responder group, while 27 athletes had a change of less than 10 points and formed the non-responder group. There were no significant differences in sex, 
body mass index, weeks from surgery to pre-training, weeks from surgery to post-training, pre-injury sport level, or pre-injury competition level between the groups. The responders reported better self-reported function compared with the non-responders, regardless of the time point. Overall, 77% of responders and 67% of the non-responders returned to their previous level of sport by one year following ACL surgery. And 82% of responders and 78% of non-responders returned to their previous level of sport by two years after ACL reconstruction. This difference was not statistically significant. So if we break that down a bit, ultimately, 59% of the athletes in this study displayed a meaningful improvement in their psychological outlook over the course of the training program. Responders, remember, those are the athletes who displayed an increase in the ACL-RSI score from pre-training to post-training that exceeded the clinically important difference of 10 points, demonstrated persistently better self-reported function at post-training and at one and two years after ACL reconstruction. But again, there were no between-group differences in return-to-sport rates. And we'll be right back. So Catherine, I learned something new today. Oh, cool. Tell me. Did you know that antiperspirants work best at night when sweat glands are least active? That's why it's critical to apply them before bed and again in the morning. They definitely did not teach us that in medical school. I know, right? Where did you learn this fun fact? On mycarpe.com. The founders of Carpe were tired of their sweaty hands and feet and developed a whole line of sweat management products. Carpe's antiperspirants and sweat-absorbing products are frequently recommended by dermatologists and have been used by thousands of sweaty people. If excessive sweat in any part of your body is bringing you down, Carpe is here to lift you back up with effective solutions that will bring back your confidence. Enter promo code SPORTSDOC on mycarpe.com, mycarpe.com, and save 15% on your order. Again, that code is S-P-O-R-T-S-D-O-C. Sports stock. And we're back. Okay. So what do we think about this? Um, Ashley, how do you think this is going to influence our practices? So I think the most important thing about the study really is that it is shedding light on the importance of psychology in terms of recovery. We've talked about this a lot um, on our podcasts in the past about ACL recovery. Um, we quoted that study out of HSS that looked at fear of re-injury being the most common uh, reason cited for failure to return to sport after ACL um, and that that being really important. So I did think this study was very important in that it highlighted the need to address those psychological factors to ensure that athletes are having good outcomes after ACL. The one thing I really uh, was hoping for out of this study was looking at a program that would affect those psychological factors. So what can we do with our athletes that is going to make them have a better psychological recovery while they're recovering from their ACL? So initially seeing this, I was thinking they would do two groups where one had the secondary training program and one did not, and then looking at the influence of that on psychological factors and then ultimately how that impacted outcomes. This, the all athletes kind of had that training program and then they looked at the psychological response, which I still think is beneficial, but it would be curious to see if we can identify a program that helps these athletes psychologically as well as physically. Yeah, I actually, I agree. I think, you know, we're getting really a lot better at identifying when there's a problem and also really just identifying that this is important and it's something we should be paying attention to. And I think the point of the program is 
we would presume that if there is a continued gradation of, you know, reps, just like anything else, the more reps we do of something, the more comfortable we get with it, that that's going to impact our psychological outcome. But that's obviously not the full answer. Um, and it needs to be more than just exposure to repeated reps of whatever your sport specific exercises are, that there probably is something else they can be doing, whether it's like visualization or meditation and I think we really do have to identify some programs that can be a little bit more disseminated to like the common person and not just someone who's like a professional athlete and has access to sports psychologists all the time. I completely agree. I think also you made a very good point about the gradation of, of returning someone that oftentimes they're doing PT, nine month mark hits, they pass their return to play analysis, we get them back and then it's like, goodbye, you know, get back to your, your whatever yeah. you were doing to work out before. And you make a good point. If you have a training staff taking care of you as a professional athlete, you're good. But if you're a high school athlete, maybe you were just working out alone in the gym. You don't really know what you should be doing in your spare time to further lower that injury risk. A lot of my athletes will continue PT well after they return to sport. Do you have something your athletes are, are doing to kind of transition them? Or do you keep them in PT after they return? I definitely keep them in PT after they return. I think at least in Denver, there's a couple different options. One, you know, if people run out of PT visits, I will increase my frequency for seeing them just so at least they have a touch point where they can come in and I can assess their form, look at, um, you know, their biomechanics when they're doing some whatever basic things that they can do in my clinic. So if they have no PT access after a certain point and they just can't afford to do it out of pocket, I will increase the frequency of my follow-ups. The other thing that there's a few clinics in Denver that offer um, class-based. So it's like physical therapists who are teaching, you know, mountain prep classes or return to sport classes, or even just generalized lower extremity group classes. And so in those classes, they're going to be surrounded by a lot of people who underwent some sort of knee surgery or have some sort of knee problem. And that's at least something where if something's bothering them, they can say to the physical therapist, why do you think this hurts? And they have someone with a really great skill set saying, oh, it's because of your form and you're doing this or that. Or, you know, perhaps we need to work on your mobility a little bit as well. And they teach them how to foam roll or whatever it might be. But I think those sort of things are the tools that I use when someone needs to continue. Yeah, I think that's really important because returning to sport, even if you prep them, you have them go through all this you know, sport-specific training, there's still going to be aches and pains and different things that flare up when they get back to sports. Yeah. And I think having the guidance of a therapist as well as us as clinicians, but you know, their therapists work with them three times a week, oftentimes for nine months of recovery. You know, they they certainly have a better grasp on their little uh, you know, tiny things that that might go wrong or get inflamed than than I do. See them maybe every two or four weeks. So I think that it is important to keep that relationship and keep them in tune there, so they don't think something is wrong if they get you know a little bit of soreness right. of their patella tendon. They know how to address it. They're around people like you said that have gone through this and they know how to address it. Yeah, and just also preparing them and saying hey, this isn't always going to feel perfect. And it's a little bit of five steps forward, one step back. Mm -hmm. Because as you start to feel really good, you push yourself, you kind of go over that line a little bit. And it doesn't mean you retore your ACL or you did something devastating. But, you know, it just means like, oh, okay, take that feedback, take that step back and realize, yep, I probably overdid it a little bit. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now more about the psychological aspect. We've talked about this before in the past about what you do, what you ask your athletes, and then what you do. Ultimately, if you identify someone who might be psychologically struggling, um, what's your protocol for that? Are you just having a conversation with them and then referring them to a sports psychologist? Does it really depend on what they're telling you? Yeah, I think it depends on what they're telling me. I think the first thing I try and do is just normalize and say, I'm so glad you brought this up. This comes up all the time. Um, it is a very difficult transition. And just know that what you're feeling is super typical, whether you're you know, just a recreational athlete or you're getting back to something at a very high competitive level. So one, I try and normalize. And then two, I always sort of say, look, um, I'm always going to help you get resources. I might not be the expert in this area, but I have access to other people who are. And that might be referring to a sports psychologist at the University of Denver. That might be um, with like the professional athletes referring it to this woman who's based out, out of California that will do a tele. Um, and then the last thing, and that's a little bit you know less expensive, is I always sort of just introduce uh, Headspace has a rehab and recovery series that's geared towards like recovering from injury and sports injury. So I always just like sort of reintroduce those throughout and sort of remind people, Hey, these things are available for you. But I think the most important is just normalizing. Mm-hmm. I think that's, so I was just me, going- um, yeah. I was just going to say that, that normalization is the most important. And I say that and I say, this is completely normal what you're going through. And then I follow that up with, I'm not discounting what you're going through. You don't feel like this is normal and this is really hard for you. But a lot of people feel exactly how you're feeling right now. Because a lot of times, especially with um, tele, no, it's not telemedicine, um, uh, virtual classes for a kid, yeah. they don't have to rush back to school now. So a lot of them are recovering at home. And I'm starting to see the psychological impact of being at home. Like they're not around their friends. They're not, they're already not around their team. They're not around their friends. Now they're not in class. They're still getting the same education, but they're not having that interaction. And I'm noticing that that's really having a profound effect. So I'm telling these kids, I know you have the virtual option, go back to school the week after, like you would have after an ACL, you have your crutches, you have an elevator. You need to be around people that are, are going to make you feel more normal. And then you raised a really good point about the telehealth um, sports psychologist. Yeah. I've been using this really right, great guy out of Ithaca College, recommended by one of the PTs in my area. And he's been dealing with everything from pro athletes to you know high school athletes to anything in between. And he's really great. He sets up just a, you know, a, a telehealth uh, video visit. And given that that's an option now, there's really no excuse for us as clinicians. Like there are people out there. We need to get these athletes that are struggling referred um, if, if really they, they do need that. And I think to build on what you said about getting the kids back into high school, the other thing when it's a high school kid, I generally, or even college, but high school really, especially because this doesn't always happen. I think college it does is I always say, you know, what job are you going to do for your team? You know, if they're not going to be able to play, I'll say, do you think you can do stats for them? Or do you think maybe you can ask your coach if you can be an assistant coach this season? You know, just like at a junior level, because I think that social piece, you know, not having all like their friends around and not feeling like they're quite part of the team is a huge hole for them as well. So even in that first visit before surgery, I'll sort of bring that up. Go ask your coach, see what how, what you can do to help your team. Um, just so you should be there. You should be involved. And like, I wouldn't try and hide from all, you know, your friends and the competition and stuff. 
I completely agree. And as soon as you can get them back to being with the team, even working out, like I'm not sure when you clear them for running progression. Mine's usually around 12 weeks, maybe a little later. It's a meniscus repair. And I'm saying, Hey, you can jog with your team. Like if you can, you can do gym workouts with your team and, you know, football players, you can stand on the sidelines with your team. If you're wearing that brace and you're, you're doing all the right things, then you can be there. And it really does make a world of difference. Just being able to do that, that part of it with their team. Yeah, I think so too. Um, well, hopefully, you know, things continue to grow and in, you know, this space in the literature, because I think we do need to also be able to offer some sort of programming that's almost just the same as returning to sport. And hey, here's the exercises we want you to do. This is how we test you out. But being able to offer somebody some sort of curriculum would, you know, be huge. Absolutely. Perfect. Yeah, sure. All right. That's great. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to this overtime episode of the Sports Docs. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on all things sports medicine. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review. You can also reach us by email at thesportsdocspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at thesportsdocspod. We love your feedback. All right. So Ashley, let's chat about Carpe and those sweaty guys in our lives. You know I live in a house full of boys, and hockey and lacrosse gear is everywhere. My boys have the sweatiest feet. I've tried so many things to combat their sweaty feet, and nothing has worked. I was recently introduced to Carpe, and I finally have a solution for them. Carpe's antiperspirants are loaded with sweat-absorbing powders and a careful blend of supporting ingredients to yield a far drier feeling. Absolutely. Carpe's sweat-absorbing powders and lotions are gentle formulas designed to keep you feeling dry by soaking up sweat throughout the day. Each sweat-absorbing solution is unique, optimized for maximal efficacy, but by and large, they're composed of specific powders to absorb sweat and moisture, complemented with invigorating scents and skin protection to keep you feeling fresh, clean, and of course, dry. It's a total game changer. At Carpe, their products provide you with the best sweat solutions available. Carpe has a 60-day full, no-questions-asked money-back guarantee. Find their full line at mycarpe.com, C-A-R-P-E.com. Use the code SPORTSDOC, S-P-O-R-T-S-D-O-C, to save 15%.